Welcome to the Men of Sorrows podcast. I am William Lloyd, a man of sorrow. Our podcast is committed to supporting and encouraging men to process their grief in order to heal and return to joyful living in the midst of great sadness. Today, I sit down with Bob Jernigan, a mental health counselor and pastor. We discuss the mourning of his parents, the mental health crisis, and fallout from COVID. Well, I'm here with Bob Jernigan. And Bob, I was thinking about it today. John Glenn was teaching the Alpha Series in several diff- different locations. So he was basically discipling and training people, you know, from different locations all over the place. Every once in a while, we would wad up together. And I, I knew who you were and we'd say hi. But it wasn't until you took the um, position at Amethyst and then asked me to come over that we started really getting to know each other better. Yeah. I always felt like we we're kind of like ships passing in the night there at safe yeah. Harbor because you had your class the night you were there. And I had a alpha class, I think on a different night. So we'd see each other at a meeting or something. Yeah. And then you asked me to come to Archie's and it was, you know, ever since then we've kind of been um, fellowshipping, talking, and getting to know each other really well. And it was neat. Remember, we talked about how God was teaching us and kind of reconstructing some things at the same time. We were looking at similar authors and learning similar things. Yes, kind of on parallel paths, so to speak. Yeah. And in all that time, I didn't know. And I want you to tell the listeners um, just a little bit about yourself, your background, um, what you're doing now whatever you think comes to mind when we would say, well, who is Bob Jernigan? (laughs) Well, you know, I got into the addiction treatment field through Alpha Series, and uh, I was looking for actually a different church, went to a large church, but something seemed to be missing, and began this exploration. And a friend of mine, Dave Scheel, uh, said, we're doing this home video thing, this alpha, and it's, it's really cool, but he didn't tell me much about it. He says, you might, you know, come check it out. And it's at our house. It's on Wednesday night. And uh, I started going. And I found myself going all the way through it over a year. And one day he said, are you ready to start ministering instead of being ministered to? And I thought, man, Dave doesn't usually set you up with trick questions, but I, I guess I got a bite. So Next thing I know, I was over at Safe Harbor plugging in the video and I was facilitating the alpha that way um, for a little few months and they wanted somebody to teach it. And uh, I said, well, I've never taught anything before. And John Hales said, well, that's all right. You know, the gospel teaches itself. Yeah. And I ended up at Safe Harbor that way and I started teaching alpha. And after about a year, they asked me to come on board part-time. I worked at a property appraiser's office at that time. And I realized when I started going into jail and teaching classes there, representing Safe Harbor, that um, to borrow Pam Herman's phrase, this was a world I wanted to walk in. You know, at 45, I started school with zero credits. And, you know, five and a half years later, I'm working at Amethyst. And that's kind of where we got to really know each other a little better. So I'd always wanted to be two things growing up, 
I wanted to be uh, some kind of minister, pastor, evangelist. And I wanted to be a therapist. And I never really thought about them together. But this is going back to like grade school. Mm-hmm. And the only person I could talk to about that with was my mom, because my dad was like, you know, it kind of freaked him out. And, you know, just the vibe that I got from him was I'm not going there with him. And I kind of suppressed it. But, you know, God has a awesome way of bringing things around to what his plan is. Mm-hmm. So it was somewhere during that time, actually at Safe Harbor, that, you know, I started not only ministering the gospel through counseling, but, you know, teaching, you know, at a, like a Sunday service kind of setting. And yeah. Um, yeah. And so at some point I, I, I kind of got out of the full-time addiction treatment, went into the mental health side. So I wanted to see that side of it and pursued a, a master's degree and got into regular uh, mental health counseling. Yeah. For the people that don't know the alpha series is um, it's really a, a curriculum that John Glenn wrote. And it's probably for me, the best practical application, daily application of living out the gospel, what it means to, to be a Christian, what it, what it means really to live your faith. It's, it's very practical and it's available on Amazon. I'll put everything in the show notes, um, but the alpha series is, and, and it changed so many lives. I mean, there was a mini revival here on the treasure coast. Wouldn't you say with oh, awakening? Definitely. Definitely an awakening. Personally speaking for myself, it changed everything because it, it was a religious detox Mm-hmm. You know, I had grown up with a lot of religion from going to various private schools and being taken to several different denominations growing up as far as church went. But personally, it was very freeing. Yeah. Yeah. So now the mental health work, you said that you talked to your mom about it. And that brought brought to my mind one of the things that I didn't know about you until after my son Liam took his life you approached me that Sunday morning the first morning I came back and I was a mess and you you came over and you told me that your that your mom had taken you taken her life you know when someone tells you something like that and you kind of were bearing your soul it, it showed me that I wasn't alone in this you know and it, it really helped but how how old were you ah, that's a good question um in my late 30s. Mm-hmm. I was in my late 30s. Yeah. yeah. Now, m- mom had struggled with mental illness, you know, her whole life. And she, you know, had even after my dad and mom divorced when I was seven, she remarried and had a, um, a good marriage with the ups and downs of being having bipolar depression mm-hmm. um, and, and probably some other things as well. It's a hard thing to lose someone that way. And I think you told me the other day that you kind of, your your grief reaction was kind of delayed, or there was a time you said that you realized you hadn't grieved your mother. Yes, there was an immediate shock wave. All right, I mean, I remember the day I had a home inspection business, and uh, I had my tool belt on. I was just starting a what I realized was going to be a very difficult job because it was like an old, old apartment complex. 
and I'm going to inspect this thing. And my sister called on my cell phone and my sister, you know, we talked, but it wasn't like she would call me in the middle of the day that often. And she was frantic. She was crying. She had just sent my mom up to Connecticut to see her dad and her brother. One brother still lived there and sisters. She'd flown up there and she she'd overdosed on her medication. And, you know, I literally hit my knees. Literally. It was like being hit with a sledgehammer. But then it was different. It was different because you you don't have, with suicide, you don't really have that chance to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad had cancer and he passed away when I was 35. Um, so I was 39 when mom passed away and, you know, I was with it and my dad, my wife, my brother and I, brothers yeah. and I we were in it with him in the battle and you see it coming and there's still denial and that's a whole different story. But there was like a year period of a grieving process that I really, I, I kind of recognized it by the end of the year that I'd gone through it and it was a healthy process, I think, although it didn't always, it didn't feel good necessarily, right. but it came bittersweet in that there was a song comes on and you think about, makes you think of your dad or yeah, yeah. You know, I'd be uh, out in the woods and see, you know, some animals and, you know, he was a big outdoor environmental enthusiast and, but with mom, it was, it was just different. Yeah. And I, I had a similar experience, but it was reversed. You know, I lost Liam to suicide first. And it was it was just hell on earth. And God brought me through it. And I thank God for that. And I testified on this podcast to that. But my dad, he passed away two and a half years later. It was, I, I hate to say it, but it was like easy. One, because my dad had congestive heart failure and we saw it coming. Two is because I got to talk to him and tell him everything that I'd want to say. And three, because he was Mm -hmm. singing the day before, soon and very soon, I'm going to see the king. So it was much easier, you know, and I think that I think suicide does. It does complicate. It it definitely complicates it because you don't get to say goodbye. And then, you know, as a parent. I was blaming myself and, and I hate when I hear that the, the suicide rate is going up. Yeah. You know? it's, it's frightening. It's, it, it really is disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, especially with the teenagers, adolescents. Yeah. Do you have any, like, does, is there, uh, have you done any research or talked amongst your colleagues about the cause and effect of that or? Well, we know there's a lot of stressors, yeah, and we talk about it quite often. Uh, the Mental Health Association, Walking and Counseling Center, where I work, um, they have some therapists that are dedicated, you know, part of their weekly schedule is going into schools and doing, you know, education, doing check-ins, doing interviews, and things like that. And then we also do screenings so that, you know, kids can come in and, and, and talk with a professional and can be assessed to see they need 
counseling, mm -hmm. or in some cases, they might need a higher level of care than outpatient. But very often, just having a safe place to go talk with someone about their issues um, can be very helpful. Now, you'd ask, you know, what are some of the causes of that? Well, you know, we know one big problem we have in this country is the opioid epidemic. Mm. And those numbers are frightening. I mean, when we were at Amethyst, you know, it was like getting a lot of national attention. I mean, there were in the 60 something thousands and it hit 70,000 deaths in a year from overdose with a good percentage of those being opioid. I mean, any kind of overdose is bad, obviously, but that was a big, big part of it. And, you know, now it's a hundred thousand. Is that's, it up that much? That's yeah. what I read just recently. My goodness. I mean, I don't know how you put it in perspective. We the terrible, frightening number. We lost, I believe it was around 57,000 lives in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And and that was in over 10 years. And yeah. it was horrific. Um, almost double that in a year. Something's, something's not right in this country. So there's one big thing. And these things overlap and are interrelated. Yeah. But then you have the pandemic and on a personal basis, I mean, we're in Florida, lockdowns weren't as long, but they were a long time for school. They were a long time for kids and taking out of a social setting and doing school online, you know, and then going back to school. And I, you know, I'm not arguing against masks from a public safety when they're needed, but a lot of our social cues are nonverbal. Yeah. And so that's, you know, just another factor of leading to the sense of isolation, even when they go back to school and they got to be spaced further apart and they can't do all the things they used to do, you know, and then we got to cover half our faces up. Yeah. Um, it, there's a lot there to unpack, but the isolation socially has had a negative impact yeah yeah impact. i mean i i'm always reminded i thought about it a lot from the movie one flew over the cuckoo's nest they had the one the one guy didn't want to come to group and nurse ratchet was explaining to him that hey being isolated only it only makes mm -hmm. it worse isolation it makes your your whatever issues and mental illness you already have being isolated and i know that isolation is not good and and you know i watched the kids come back to school and it was a big struggle for them to come back and i think it's going to take like another year just for kids to get used to being in school and being accountable because at home they weren't accountable and we were told that we, you know, we everyone passed, everyone got pushed ahead. So there's a lot of issues in the school, and I and I can see that. And I saw the struggle with then coming back. Some of the kids that were a little antisocial to begin with went to a, agoraphobia, and that was one of the frustrating things. Is no one was looking at the big picture of what locking down and masking and all that was doing. Right. Yeah. The suicide, I mean, there's a direct link, wouldn't you say, to the suicide rate and, and COVID? And the isolation. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because 
we're we're wired for connection right we're mm-hmm. to be safe right from a physiological not just the mental they're integrated but our autonomic nervous system is designed to sense when through neuroception when we're safe and secure and that's being part of a group that's being feeling safe feeling connected uh somebody's got your back i can communicate i can express feelings it's a safe environment and when we don't have the cues of safety it's not just when there's cues of danger but when we don't have enough cues of safety we'll shift into that alarm state of fight flight or freeze Mm -hmm. And eventually, if we don't get out of it with what's supposed to be a temporary burst of energy, we're seeing it show up as anxiety and panic disorder where people kind of get stuck in that. But eventually, many become overwhelmed and they go to that third state. So you have safe, secure, social. Then you have fight, flight or freeze. And then the last ditch effort is you go to immobilization, collapse, shutdown. Mm. And that's where people just clam up, leave me alone, stay in the bedroom. Let me just pull a blanket over. And that's not a place we want to stay. You would say right now there's a mental health crisis in this country because you said your agency is backed up three months. Yeah, 60 to 90 days. Um, you know, we can see people for that assessment, but to actually like get connected and to get into regular counseling sessions it never been in the three years that i've been here never has it been like this i remember being shocked when other places were 60 days out and we're like Mm -hmm. wow we're only 30 days out you know and now we're (laughs) 60 to 90 days out and i hear it's no better you know that being said i don't want to discourage people from reaching out because yeah always a way to work something out uh, one thing we're doing, we can bring people into some of the groups, like we have a mood disorder and anxiety support group. Uh, we have a teenage girls group. We're trying to start a teenage boys group. Um, I'm thinking about doing a, maybe calling it mindfulness plus. It will be like mindfulness practices and re- other relaxation techniques, because it's a very anxious uh, world out there that we live in. Mm-hmm. And just learning some basics of self-care and some simple forms of breath work, some very simple ways to be in the here and now can make a huge difference in how we feel. Well, it's discouraging and encouraging at the same time because you get help when you know you need help, you know, and I feel like our, our country, people just, they keep busy and they forge ahead and they keep going and they keep going. And when that shutdown came, I think a lot of those issues were already there, but surfaced. Yes. You know, because people, they couldn't run away anymore. They were, you it's know. hard to run away from yourself. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And when it's stay home because you can't really go anywhere and you can't go to work. And then that's where, you know, another issue that's coming out of this, we're seeing, it seems like we're seeing and this is anecdotal, but this is what we're seeing in counseling, at least a lot more divorces. People were stuck together for a long yeah. time. There's that stress you talk about. Yeah. Taxis on top of that. Yeah. 
they most likely were avoiding their problems, avoiding the issues, staying, you know, that whole staying busy thing. That's one reason I created this podcast was because of the grief. Often I heard in the groups, men were absent and the report was they stay busy and they're angry. So, but for me, I had a, I had a, to be honest, I had a little bit of an opposite effect when we had a shutdown. I was so happy. Tell me about that. Well, when Liam died in 2019 of May of 2019, I was out and then I went back to work the end of the school year for about three or four days and then everybody was gone. And then the summer came and I went back to school in August and I was asked to take the behavior unit. And we had some kids just acting out. I mean, it was stressful every day. And that added to, I was already had post-traumatic stress, right? From, from Liam's suicide. It was still really raw. It was really hard. I got, I got better as the year went on, but it was still stressful. I mean, these kids would take you to the mat for everything and anything. And I was just starting to get, the, I, I would say that one of the detriments was one of the boys I was, we were just starting to really, he was starting to trust me. The other kids though, they, they were a mess. They needed much more than this behavior unit could give them. Well, anyway, when the shutdown came, all that stress left me <laughs> right? yeah. because they're, they didn't even report to the screen and we would get them sometimes. And I, I would, I would call them and we kept after them and got them to at least do enough work to, to move to the other side. But all that stress was gone and Carrie and Grace and I did really well together. You know, we, we, we enjoyed each other's company. We worked well. We had good time. Grace, fantastic. Her, her goal was she knew how to play chess, but her goal was to, play me and beat me before the pandemic hmm. was over that that had an opposite effect uh, on on me carrie missed her kids so much she's a second grade teacher and i think it just added to to my personal healing there was still some some work to do in in, in the grief work um and that's i will shift gears a little bit i i feel like that there was a certain grieving of the normalcy of life that that we all kind of went through for mental health counseling how much do you see or feel that unresolved grief plays into the the struggles that people have oh a lot yeah yeah a significant amount we've learned that a lot of things go back to traumas and grief is a trauma you mentioned the post traumatic stress reaction Grief with a lot of clients that I work with, whether it's the loss of a spouse, loss of a child, the loss of a relationship through divorce. So much of what happens with our mental health, it depends on how we navigate that grief. Okay. Mm -hmm. So some people get stuck in a part of that grief, right? They get mired down and they, they don't process it for whatever reasons. It can be a lot of different reasons you know and it might be helpful to kind of talk about the stages of grief mm -hmm. now the stages in real life aren't always clean cut and in the same order you know and i'm just in this stage or in that stage they can overlap 
but it kind of goes the initial stage is often denial right denial has been called the shock absorber of the soul because yeah. it's a protective mechanisms right this can't be happening right that's like our first it like we put some space between the horrific news whether we were expecting it or not and the reality of what's happened from that point you know we might go into anger we can be there for a while just really mad we might be mad at god we might be mad at the person that passed away i've heard people they were angry how can you leave me how can you yeah. leave me like this bargaining is a stage and that's kind of interesting so well, what's there to bargain with well somebody's dying somebody may try to make deals with god you know i put quotes air quotes around deal yeah if you'll keep them here for me i'll do anything you know that's something sometimes people go through that yeah and then depression is a stage now there's depression and then there's clinical depression like major depressive disorder well the depression that we feel can be natural grief and loss. We don't want that to turn into long-term despair where it becomes clinical depression. Trying to avoid the depressive feelings, trying to numb it, all the different ways people might do that, keeps them from processing it. We need to feel our feelings, right? We need yeah. to actually experience those feelings because when we try to tamp them down try to avoid them all together you know we can get stuck right it gets stuck in our unconscious and we never necessarily resolve them uh, we need to work through it and this of course was where a therapist may be helpful may be needed or maybe not but it's helpful to be aware of these stages and eventually acceptance okay Acceptance doesn't mean that I'm a-okay with it, right? That mm -hmm. I don't miss my mom, my dad, or whoever it is, your son. But it means we get to the point where we can get on with our life. We can appreciate that we had them in our life for the time that we did. Yeah. And, you know, the impact that we had on each other. I read a lot of Alan Wolffelt's books on grief. And I was mad at him at first. Oh, yeah? Because <laughs> he said, you got to move towards the pain. You have to move towards it. And I wanted, I so much wanted to get out of the pain. I, I think I definitely was depressed and, and despair, feeling all that and, and deep sorrow. Even though Liam was gone, I think I kept telling this same story over and over again about him having fetal alcohol syndrome and the things that I saw as I told it, he was still alive. He hadn't died yet. You know what I mean? So in my mind, he's still alive. And in my, I think that was a kind of a way of bargaining, telling that story. Mm. I could have done this. I wanted to do this. This is what we were doing. Um, one of the things that I saw was that Liam, he would like, if he said, let's dad, let's do such and such. <clears throat> and I'd say, no, he'd, he'd kind of get real discouraged. So what I learned to do was give him something like, well, no, Liam, we can't do that, but we'll do this next week. Or, I'd, you know, I kind of line things up and that would alleviate him and some of the issues he had with his fetal alcohol brain. And 
so as I was, I would tell, I would tell the story, you know, this is what I was doing. And I think as I was telling that, it was kind of like bargaining. It was kind of like in my mind, right? Mm -hmm. do, you, do you do you relate to that? Do you think I'm reading that right? No, I think, you're, I think you are reading it. I think that you, yeah. you have good insight about that from yeah. saying it sounds like that definitely is a form of trying yeah. to have an alternate reality to what's happened. Yeah, because I, as long as I was telling it, I'd get a little bit of relief, you know. But in my mind, and I, I remember the day it dawned on me that's probably what I was doing. It doesn't matter what I could have done, should have done. None of that matters. And and one of the other things that really scared me is there's no way I can feel like this the rest of my life. I can't walk around like to me there was no end to it. And God showed me to just take it one day at a time just one day. But I do remember, Bob, it was about six months into it. I went, I remember the day, like there was a big, big shift. I had gone to the um, suicide support group down in Jupiter since I was closer to um, Palm Beach Gardens. One of our favorite stores down there is Trader Joe's and the other is Whole Foods. So I always like run after the group. I'll run down to, um, there and I called I called Carrie to tell her like hey is there anything that you know you want to request I'm going to head to Trader Joe's and Whole Foods it was that moment I was sitting in the car calling her I felt I don't know I just felt something lift something come off of me and I felt lighter and I think that was somehow the acceptance stage whatever transpired in the group and you felt that shift I didn't know whether to trust it or not, but it, that was the big shift. Things were lighter. Things were, you know, um, there was something that happened a couple of weeks before then where Grace and I were sitting at the kitchen table and <laughs> Carrie said something. She misheard us. So what she said was really funny the way it came out. She was in the kitchen. We were in the dining room and I started laughing. And then Grace looked at me like that was the first time I, I genuinely laughed. And I remember that, but I remember it was a, that it was, it was, I think the Wednesday before Thanksgiving or maybe two Wednesday, but that, that when I was in the car and I was talking to Carrie about going to Trader Joe's, I felt now there, you know, I was still very sad and it was, I, I was still progressing through the grief, but that day it was the shift and things were bearable and I re-engaged with life. And it was kind of like that invisible, like when I was grieving, there was this invisible wall between me and the rest of the world. But it was mm. kind of like that was gone. That was one of the things. And there was this weight off my shoulders. And I think that was really when I reached acceptance. And it's important for people to know that because a lot of times in depression, people feel like, I can't live like this forever. I can't, you know, and it, it won't be like that forever. That yeah. it, it, it does transition. Yeah. And you yeah. can find joy again. Yeah. I mean, I, I did. I had, I had a couple people tell me, though, and it's just their experience. They say, well, it doesn't get better. But someone who lost their son in, in a car accident, he was one of Liam's Marine buddies. It doesn't get better. But you get used to it. And I, I, when he left, I looked at Carrie. I said, there is no way I can get used to this. You know, it's unbearable. But there, there is, 
there is a shift. Everybody grieves differently. Sometimes I don't know whether to say, no, you're going to get better. It's going to be better. But I, I want to tell them that. But the main the dividing factor for me was the gospel, that hope that, yes, the promises of Jesus are clear. I'm going to see him again. That that helped an enormous amount. Grieving with hope. What helped what, you know, helped you the most in your grief? Well, definitely faith in God, you know, knowing mm-hmm. where my dad was, knowing yeah. where my mom was, that hope of the gospel, you know, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Some people think that suicide's like this unforgivable sin, you know, that they're banished to hell forever or something like that, which is not scriptural. That's not no. scriptural. We know Christ died for all sin. So that was the big thing. And then having family, you know, my brothers were in that grief. My wife was in that grief. All of us were in it. You know, we in 2011, we lost a grandchild and it was the day she was born. That was a different grief experience. I remember at the time that I was so worried for my daughter. I was so worried for her who had lost her the day she was born that and she'd had a rough pregnancy. And I had a driver to the funeral and I didn't know if I was going to be able to keep it together. Yeah. I'm like, I really didn't know if I was going to be able to keep it together. Was so focused on getting through it for her that I like pushed that down. Right. And I remember Roger Garamore was at the wedding, at the wedding, funeral. Funeral. Um, and there's this little casket and, and I'd, I'd never seen a baby casket, but it was, it was like, unreal. And I remember turning around and I'd gotten through it. The pastor just said, you know, kind of the final words. And Roger was standing there and I introduced him to my brother. And I was talking like a normal conversation, like we were at church or we were, yeah. of course. Or, and I, I remember like just a brief look on his face for a second. And it hit me. I'm like, this isn't normal at all, man. He must think I'm a sociopath or something. Because I had pushed that down. Yeah. But I, I recognized what had happened and I felt the pain and I grieved it, you know, and over over time. Yeah. But I had it's just, I guess, psychologically what I had to do to get through it. Cause I couldn't break down and not drive my daughter to the funeral. Because Carrie didn't have the same relationship with Liam that I had because I raised him in 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 the first marriage and then by myself until he was 10 or 11 then he came into Carrie's life for a little bit of time then he went in the marines so it wasn't wasn't the same bond and Carrie's reaction was similar to yours but long term she stuffed all of her grief and pain because she was so worried about me and Mm -hmm. trying to keep it together for me even though I pushed her and said, listen, I'm going to get counseling for myself, go to groups. You, you, you need someone to talk to, you know, and it was similar with, with grace. What I saw is when they saw that I was okay, that I was going to be okay. Then it started to kind of unravel for them a little bit. You know, Carrie went through it almost a year later in the summer it was coming out and it started yeah it started as anger and then a lot of weeping 
and then acceptance. But that caretaking role is mm. is huge because I was looking out after Grace and Carrie too. So we were kind of taking care of ourselves, but there was no, I knew that I couldn't, I was no good for anybody unless I got better. You know, and I told him, I said, I want to do whatever it takes. We have to move through this and we have to, you know, in my mind, the way my mind works, I have to do this right. I have to grieve right. I mean, that's the way I think. And there's there's no right or wrong way, but God, God brought me through it. I mean, the, the only way I can adequately express is that God raised me from the dead. That that's what happened with me. Because you really feel like a zombie when you're in that that depressed state of grief. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just so hard to sometimes just take the next step, get through the daily activities, other people, um, yeah. you know, can feel numb, can feel disconnected. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what counseling is important, you know, because when we get stuck in that, we need to find the path forward. And I believe it's biblical, you know, because we talk, the Bible talks about carrying each other's burdens that, you know, friends can help with that. We need those connections, but professional counseling can also help with that. I sought out John and, you know, I said, uh, can, will you be my grief counselor? You know, will you process this with me? So I, I, John and I spent a lot of time and his dimly lit office out there in Okeechobee, just you know, going going through and and talking and and um, processing, you know, the grief. My usual emotion in any stress was usually anger. <laughs> like yeah. Carrie would get anxious, I'd get angry. I remember when, you know, Grace would she went through this period where she would get these earaches. And I'd go into the flight or fight mode, you know, and like, what are we going to do? And I, you know, I'd feel like, and, and Carrie could sense it. And Carrie would be anxious, like, what are we going to do? And then that would like, and I said, well, we got it. So we have to get to the doctors. And I remember we took Grace to the doctor. And when the doctor told us, oh, told us exactly what she was going to do and that she was going to be okay. When we were walking out, I start crying. And she looks at it and she's like, shakes her head. She goes, uh, she goes, I don't understand you. You seem so mad and now you're crying. I'm saying, yeah, because the stress is over. She's going to be okay. When Liam died, I felt anxiety for the first time. I never really experienced any acute anxiety or a lot of anxiousness. Mm -hmm. And I, that kind of, like, I was really worried about that. John suggested I go maybe see a psychiatrist and maybe get some medication. I went to my medical doctor and he said that he could maybe prescribe something. But he suggested, because he knew my lifestyle, he, that I like I don't take any medication, antibiotics, anything. You know, we're, we're very preventive and holistic here. He said, why don't you try, try ashwagandha first? He says, try that, try melatonin for sleeping. And um, I did, and that did help. But there was another, there was another, um, when I went to get the ashwagandha at the health food store, they gave me something else. I forget what it was called, but it did help. But what helped was taking that, taking, I remember taking it, but I remember 
the the thing that had me the most anxious was I can't I can't live like this for the rest of my life. Like Liam's never coming back, so that's not going to change. What what helped was the cognitive reconstruction that I don't have to live like this for the rest of my life. I only have to do today, one day at a time. Like what God showed me was, listen, son, just get through this part, get through this part. So I had this routine because I had the summer to grieve too. I was off for the summer where I would, whatever I had to do, I, I had to get to the end of the day where I could get to my books. I have my Bible. I had the Imagine Heaven book by John Burke. I had Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. And I, I was reading like different books all at the same time. And I just get, if I could just get through the day and get to my books and just, and, and God did a lot of, you know, work, you know, in, in that. And the other thing that I noticed was that after I started getting some relief and getting better every day, I noticed I'd feel like I got gut punched around between four and five o'clock. And what we figured out is that's when I got the call from the detective. So I'm gearing up for the shock over and over and over again. Wow. Yeah. You were kind of stuck in that loop. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a trauma trigger that time of day. Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier at the start and that death isn't the only thing that brings grief. You mentioned divorce. You mentioned, you know, any significant loss. Yes. Yeah. And I remember John asking me, when's the first, do you remember, you know, feeling grief? And, and, and I remember when, <laughs> and it sounds, it sounds really funny, but I think I mentioned this on Sunday I loved the summertime, loved it. And two things would happen. My cousins would come down and, and in New Jersey, going down the shore is something where everybody from New Jersey knows what that means. Mm-hmm. It's like there's parts in New Jersey where there's a lot of traffic and driving to the beach. You, you're hours from the beach. You know, we live near the beach. So my cousins would come and live with us for, you know, a couple weeks at a time to just be down the shore, you know, enjoy the ocean and the beach. And when they would leave after a week, sometimes two weeks or more, I would, I would cry. I mean, I would cry for, I would cry for a whole day and not want to go out, not want to see my friends, not do anything. And it took me like a a couple days to get over it. That was a grief, you know, definitely. And then when summer ended and it was time to go back to school, I'd start crying, not because of school, because summer was ending. Summer was over. I loved the summer. And I, I think I told you on Sunday when I came to visit Florida with my parents, we went on a family vacation. I think I was in second or third grade. I said to my dad, there's a place like this. There's a place where it's warm all the time. Why don't we live here? <laughs> well, so, yeah. But like you said, it's not just the death of a loved one. It can be the loss of a relationship, separation from a loved one for maybe, you know, positive reasons as a separation. Maybe right. somebody's gone to school or visiting away, but, uh, and let's not, you know, sell short losing a pet. Um, yeah. some people that's, you know, I mean, I've had, you know, dogs that were, you know, like family. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, and when we lost our Lizzie, 
you know, and I walk, took a walk with her almost every night around this neighborhood. And I'm telling you, at Christmas time, it really hit me because I remember always looking at one house that had the really nice Christmas tree in the window. Yeah. And we would always just stop there and stand there and look at it for a few, few moments. <laughs> and the next year it was like, you know, she wasn't with me on that walk. Yeah. We, we, we lost Ruby this January and it was, it was definitely a process. I still look for her in the house. You know, she was our dog for 15 years and I still look around. So I remember someone said at a, at a, um, I think it was Bobby Hayes was teaching in an A class and he, and he said, he says, people need to learn how to grieve. People yes. don't grieve. I think that, I, th I think that's really true. And one thing that sticks out in my mind that can be helpful. And I got this actually from Jenny Cease, who was a therapist at Amethyst. When I was there, she's at a different recovery center now down in Stewart, but with her clients, she would often in a group, she would ask, what, what's a way that you can, you know, commemorate with your dad, your significant other, whoever it was, what's something that you can do to kind of commemorate your life with them. And that can kind of turn it into a, like a positive. Um, yeah. And we don't want to take and build a shrine to somebody and get obsessive about it, but in a healthy way, what can you do? I mean, for me, you know, my dad and I were, you know, he got me into muzzleloading at a young age and I still have my first muzzleloader that he gave me. And, you know, yeah. that in the woods. And I remember just feeling really connected with him, just carrying that in the crook one, walking through, looking at the trees, having a cigar. <laughs> I, I smoked yeah. it for about three a year up there at the campfire where the property that he bought and just having that time. And like, this one's for you, dad. It can be something simple. Just any little meaningful thing that you from time to time kind of reminisce when you can do that in a positive way. Yeah, that definitely. I, I have a couple of those things. One is that um, on, on Wednesdays, I usually, after the gym in the morning, stop for gas at Wawa and I go in and I get a hazelnut coffee because that was my dad's favorite. And there's a story behind that. Wawa just kind of came to Florida the last few years. It, you know, it was a big Eastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey stores all over the place. And when Carrie and I, when I first took Carrie up to New Jersey, we flew in and my dad came and picked us up at the airport and we were driving and Carrie leaned over to me. We were, you know, we were in the back seat and the kids it was a van, but the kids were there. And she said, can we get some coffee? And my dad heard her and he said, Carrie, you can ask me. He said, I'll take you to Wawa. And Carrie was like, what the hell's a Wawa? <laughs> and my dad said to her, you never had the Wawa experience? You know, so mm -hmm. we went in because they have all the different kind of creamers and coffees. And whenever I go in to, to get the coffee, I always get a hazelnut. And I say, all right, dad. You know, the other thing is he he taught me we put a fireplace in our house. We put an addition on our house and a fireplace and getting wood and chopping wood. My dad taught me how to do all that stuff and to build fires. Whenever I make a fire in the outdoor fireplace, I always think of my dad always. And, um, and for Liam, one of the things that I do 
in his memory, if I see a veteran, because it was very, he was a veteran, and it, anywhere we went, he'd go out of his way if he saw a guy with a hat on, Vietnam veteran, he'd go over and thank them for their service. And wow. he was very, like, consistent with that. So now when I see veterans, I, I, I do that. You know, I make sure I'll go out of my way, you know, for, for Liam. And, you know, there's so many things with Liam that, you know, like, the adventures of huckleberry finn was such a <laughs> like we read that and then we played it i mean he was only like he was like three years old and i was teaching it so i had him at the park and i was i had the book with me and he came over he goes what's that i said it's a book called huckleberry finn he'd say tell me about that dad tell me about huck finn so i began to tell him you know and that same year, the Elijah Wood movie came out, and I actually took him to see it at three wow. or four. So anything, anything like that, see, like I have these Mark Twain cigars. I'll smoke them. And the, I mean, we, we touched on it a little bit. At first, for some reason, it didn't mean anything to me, and it did not help me that, you know, Liam was in heaven. I mean, I for the first time, and I taught it with fervency. I would, I you know, you and I, officiate funerals i would witness to the future glory the promises of jesus that for some reason that was so shaken like i was like what if it's not true i'm never going to see him again but it came back stronger than ever so whatever god was shaken up during that time what god's doing and has done with eternity that it's endless it's 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 like the possibilities are you know infinite infinite like there's no we can imagine it and like one of the one of the um randy alcorn wrote that book and he says well why do people say they don't know what heaven's going to be like there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth there's going to be we're going to live on the earth like that's that one belief that everything's going to be resurrected and we're going to have physical resurrected bodies it doesn't matter because the promises are are clear. Um, I always get, I always imagine that the new heaven and the new earth are made already. You know, the new earth is out there, and that's where we go to live in these new bodies of energy and light. I don't know, because the universe is still expanding. So Jesus said, "I went and prepared a place for you." It's still expanding. He still create. You know, I think God started creating when. He created, he stopped creating, you know, it's. He took a rest, but, you know, Jesus said, and you may know where the verse is, I don't remember offhand, but he said something to the fact that, you know, my father is continually at work. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it was in the context of when the first time I read that was, he's doing amazing things today, as amazing yeah. as when he created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, yeah, so that is, I mean, that, that hope is is really, I think, made all the difference to where I have tremendous joy in life now. You know, I still have the sadness is always underlying, the guilt and the shame and all that. It, it, it tries to rear its head, but it's for me, it's like, you know, the Russell Crowe movie where Beautiful Mind? Yes. Remember when he decided that I'm going to go off my medication, but I'm going to ignore <laughs> the, the people? And he started ignoring him. And at first they were like in his face, you know, shouting for his attention. 
Mm-hmm. And then the next scene, they were like across the street, you know? <laughs> so they were like all, the, the voices of guilt for me or, and, and, and regret and shame. They're, they're, they're back there trying to get my attention, but I, I, but they're I receding. Pay, I yeah. I don't have to pay attention to them. I don't have to entertain them, you know, because God has shown me something beautiful. I remember crying and bawling my eyes out saying, Lord, um, I didn't want Liam to die. I, for some reason, that just kept coming out of me. And I heard the still small voice. Neither did I. That's why I gave him eternal life. <laughs> you know? Right. Wow. So it's those those things that. Well, you know, when I say that, Bob, I don't know how people get it through it without God. Truly, I don't believe they do it without God. Whether they're aware of it or not, I think God brings them through. I think I think you're on to something there for sure, because I've thought that at counseling setting, you know, hear stories that are so hard to hear. Can't imagine what they're like to live with. You know, it's hard for believers, but then I hear people that just don't have that hope. And and then there's those you can tell that they're searching. Yeah. You know, I don't you you remember the book The Shack. You know, it, it seems so bleak. But then when God gives you that expanded consciousness that there is so much more. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it is at work, like you said. So to God, all people are alive on some level we're all con- connected you know on, on some level i don't know how much they interact with this world or not you know i mean i i can't imagine that god wouldn't like allow parents to look in on big events for their kids you know <laughs> like you know like my dad he was he was kind of trying to hang on to to come to grace's graduation last year and he passed the January before. I don't know. Somehow I think maybe he could see what's going on. God would let him in on it. You know, I don't know. You just don't know. But why not? Well, you hear so many stories from people of the things that they notice that wouldn't have ever made sense. And they make sense after someone passes. And it's like, you know, they get that feeling that it's okay because whatever it is. I don't discount that because, yeah. you know, as Bible says, God's ways are higher than ours. Mm-hmm. And we know that he's very interested in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, I think there is like, I think that moment that I was telling you about where I felt everything lift, it, it's what you said that I just, I knew everything was going to be okay. It's going to be all right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get through this. And sometimes to, to be honest, Carrie and I will, you know, be sitting, you know, out back and we'll kind of just look at each other be like, wow, you know, God just did this miracle in our lives, you know, and we're, we're grateful, grateful for it because you know, God, it's in his nature. He's a healer. He's a healer. He is. And I think Richard Wars obviously probably written about this a lot, as have others, that Christ is with us in our suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we're not alone in it. Yeah. The problem of evil will never solve solve it philosophically. We're not going to solve the problem of evil. But what I do know is that God, he suffers with us. And he'll sit with us in that suffering, in that dark hole, until we're ready to let his light come in, you know, and then he'll, he'll pull us out. 
Well, anything else you want to add, Bob? It's you know, I would just encourage people to reach out. Uh, hospice, visiting nurse associations, they have groups and grief support groups. There's a lot of grief support out there, individual therapy. Reach out, find it, get help, get connected. You don't have to go through it alone. Through your church, through your pastor, through your therapist, there's, you know, more than one way, sometimes multiple ways are needed. You know, we all, everybody, we all need help. At one time or another, we need more help. We bear each other's burdens and then you'll, you'll, it'll come your time where you're helping others and bearing their burdens. You know, that's the beautiful thing. And, you know, the body of the body of Christ is so essential to that too. And, And it was for me, you and Dave and everyone at, at, reach community church and people of alpha ministries i remember a woman that had been through the suicide of her son you know i would write her she would say email me or instant message me and we would talk back and forth a little bit and she said well you have to you know crawl into god's lap and let him love you and i remember i was driving over to a Sunday morning at Reach, and it was only a couple weeks after. It might have been the morning we talked. It might have, it wasn't that long. And um, after the service, Dawn came over to me. She started to talk to me, and I just burst out crying. I mean, I was, I mean, I was bawling. It was just one of those waves that hit me, and she grabbed me and hugged me. And then, oh, I forget her name, the blonde-haired girl she lost she lost her son her son was sick she came over and hugged me and then somebody else i forget there was a third person we were like this ball (laughs) moving, and they just held me and i mean i was wailing grace and carrie had gone to the to the restroom i was like wailing crying and crying and crying and crying and then i was cried out you know and they held me and you know they told me they loved me and everything and when they walked away god said that's that's what it looks like climbing up in my lap and letting me love you. Right. Cause we're the body of Christ. Right. Absolutely. So that was, that was, I remember never forget that God saying that's, that's what, in case you were wondering. And that's, that's more what, powerful than anything anybody could say to yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. It's because, being you know, there. Yeah. And you know, you look at, there's a passage in, in revelation where it says that we've overcome by our testimony, by the blood of the lamb. And there was, there was, there was something that indicated fellowship, really. Part of my life during that time was being with God's people, being in God's word, trust in Christ, staying upon him. There wasn't this miraculous thing. There was no super charismatic figure in my life it was the it was those things the fellowship with the saints you know faith in christ being together you know and and relying on our our testimony i find myself like on tuesday nights when we're teaching and i find myself talking about it, and i said well maybe i shouldn't talk about it as much but i'm talking about it as as a testimony of god's faithfulness a testimony of god's goodness like he can, he can bring us through anything, anything, and everything. And the, I like what you said about reach out, you know, reach out, 
You can't go it alone. That's what I tell a lot of people. I have on a grief, a Facebook page of grievers and the new people. I said, don't, don't, you're not going to be able to do this alone. Can't. No, we're not designed for that at all. Yeah. Mm. And that, that goes back to what you said in the beginning about isolation. Well, Bob, I really, really appreciate it. I'm going to. Hey, uh, good to be here with you tonight, Bill. Yeah, there'll be a lot of information in, in, in the show notes for people. They can find you teaching Sunday mornings at the Causeway, but I'm going to put the Reach um, website in there and all, and people can go in there and, and see. Awesome. And I'll put it in the show notes because they, they put your teaching on Sunday mornings up too. So if anyone wants to hear more from Bob Jernigan, just link to the Reach Community Church um, website and you can see sermons and teachings and Dave, Sheil as well. But Bob, I really appreciate you coming on and, and joining us and I appreciate our friendship. And Likewise, um, very yeah. much. And we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thank you again for listening to Men of Sorrows. If you have any questions or comments, please email us. Our email is in the show notes. Remember, God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. May he bless you always and forever, and may you find healing in his presence and grace. Amen.